Welcome back, listeners, for Circulating Spaces' 11th episode, Designing Global Activism, with our guest, Fabiana Rodriguez. I'm Ankita Chakrabarti. And I'm Christian Howard. Circulating Spaces is a podcast dedicated to exploring what it means to engage with literature as a global community, coming at you from the University of Virginia and the Public Humanities Lab, generously funded by the Institute of the Humanities and Global Cultures. Subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. So as the semester starts winding down, what's been going on with you, Christian? Well, some great news, actually. Um, I recently defended my dissertation, yay! Um, <laughs> and I'm soon headed off to start a digital humanities postdoctoral research position at Bucknell University, which is super exciting. Um, so there's been a lot going on, but all really great news. Um, and how about you, Ankita? That is amazing. Congratulations, Christian. <laughs> um, so I'm still working through my dissertation, but it's finally getting somewhere, I think. Um, I've also been working on a virtual reality project, but it's early days for that still. Um, yeah. So that's, that's awesome. about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's introduce our guest, Faviana Rodriguez. Faviana is, an, is a transdisciplinary artist, cultural strategist, and activist based in Oakland, California. Her work and, coll- and collaborative initiatives address migration, economic inequality, gender justice, and ecology. Faviana leads art interventions around the United States at the intersection of art, social justice, and cultural equity. In 2016, she received the Robert Rauschenberg Artist as Activist Fellowship for her work around mass incarceration. In 2017, she was awarded an Atlantic Fellowship for Racial Equity for her work around racial justice and climate change. Welcome, Fabiana. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. We're so glad to have you on our show. Um, So on your website, you describe yourself as an interdisciplinary artist, cultural organization, and social justice activist. So what does this all mean for you? And what does it mean to be doing all three of these things simultaneously? Yes, um, that's a great question. So, So first is I'm an artist, and so I love to express myself and to create works that are very uniquely about my individual experience, my complicated individual experience. And while I'm dealing with systemic issues and barriers, you know, as a first generation woman of color in my art, I really try to be expansive and to embrace all of the human emotions. And my art is different than my activism. And in my activism, I organize other cultural workers. I organize artists. I think that as creative people, we are actually a highly unorganized workforce. You know, people look at artists and they somehow think that we are these magical fairies that come up with ideas. Um, And yet we are missing a sort of artist union in our country. Hmm. Uh, And so I work to organize artists to build power together so that we, A, don't get exploited, but that B, that we leverage um, the, our ability as makers to have an impact on society. And the third thing I do is I build institutions. Um, in addition to organizing, I believe that most um, powerful movements exist because of institutions. And institutions mm-hmm. means that there's infrastructure, there's longevity, there's something that we can tangibly pass to the next generation. And I believe that because when I was growing up and I was a young artist and I was a kid, I met the Black Panthers and I met mm. artists from the Black Arts Movement, from the Chicano Arts Movement. And yet um, we did not have our institutions. You know, mm. we didn't have our museums. We didn't have our cultural centers. And I realized that 
it's amazing that I have mentors, but that we also need space. We need physical space. We need um, places that we can go to. And so I believe that we need to be building institutions. And I think when people hear I'm an artist, they have a very different idea of me than when I say I'm building institutions. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that as part of my identity, I need to embrace all three of those because I'm good at all of them. Um, And I also need to differentiate because at some times I just want to be an artist who doesn't interact with anyone and is alone (laughs) in my studio, just sort of, you know, tripping out on my ideas. (laughs) Yeah, that's, I mean, that sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned your childhood a little bit. So how did you really get involved in the art and activist scenes? Yes. So I've always felt like I was an artist. I think that a lot of us are born with this immense desire to create. And some of us um, just go on to pursue that because that voice, the creative voice is so strong. My creative voice as a child was, immense and I would um, make art and put it all around my home my kitchen my living room my parents allowed me to just make a gallery of it and I would make radio shows I just loved to express myself Mm -hmm. and keep in mind you know when I was growing up Dora the Explorer didn't exist yet there was no kinds of brown kids on TV so I am lucky that my parents didn't really let me watch TV, so I had to get lost in my own imagination, and I loved it. I had so much fun. To this day, I have so much fun just being alone and making art. But as a kid, um, growing up in East Oakland, you know, Oakland is the home of the Black Panther Party. The Bay Area is a huge political center. So many mm-hmm. movements emerged from here, and that's the environment I grew up in. It was the 80s. Um, I was still witnessing the effects of crack and cocaine in my neighborhood. It was a very dangerous place to be because Oakland back then was not as heavily gentrified as it is today. It was a very poor, neglected community. And um, when I was a teenager and I learned about my own history, ethnic studies, and I realized that I lived in a community where the Panthers had organized and where um, the Chicano power movement had sort of... uh, um, left some institutions like schools. I went to a bilingual school. Uh, I just had a good sense that I belonged to a longer trajectory. Um, And then finally, when I was in college and I got to meet the Panthers and I really got to be mentored, it was was a major turning point for me because um, I realized how much I didn't didn't get in high school. (laughs) Like in high school, I didn't learn any kind of like history about myself, my people, my community, around how um, people in the state of California especially really fought for equity. So I had like a mega transformation, and that is that not only did I learn the power of my voice, but I also had a context to understand Mm -hmm. what had happened to me. Because as a young person, I would always be like, wow, why is it so dangerous in our community? Why can't I walk around? Why do my friends and me get shot at? Like, why is there so much gang violence? Mm -hmm. I didn't have, I didn't understand the system. Mm -hmm. And when I finally understood the system, I was like, great. I am going to use the art, my art and my voice to change the system for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Well, we really enjoyed looking at your um, visual artwork, which is extraordinarily colorful and full of life and just so intensely expressive. Um, Mm -hmm. 
it just it it blew us away. So yeah. um so in your we're wondering in your own words, how would you describe your art for our listeners? How would I describe yeah. my art? Well, my <laughs> my art is an expression of freedom mm-hmm. and pleasure. Hmm. My art has textures and shapes from all of nature. It has leaves and animals and circles and mm-hmm. squares and you sort of get lost in the shapes but they're all different colors. You see greens and pinks and yellows and blues and they're all sort of mashed together but they flow very nicely and they take you into another universe. Uh, and, and they take you into a place where you can feel dignity, you can feel love, you can feel connection, but you really get transported to this other universe um, in which color is all around you and texture. Um, and what I think is most important when you look at my work is that it is uniquely done from somebody who did not go to art school who actually dropped out of college and who's accumulated a huge body of knowledge just by observing and learning from mentors. Mm -hmm. My entire knowledge as an artist has come from uh, non-traditional sources. And that is reading, watching YouTube videos, you know, attending workshops. Mm -hmm. And so I love that it's this huge mashup Mm -hmm. of all of these different modalities Um, But it's still very uniquely also feminist. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe that when you see it, it it really feels uh, empowering. It's a dose of power coming Mm -hmm. straight to you. Mm -hmm. That's that's great. And I've, you know, certainly enjoyed uh, looking at your pieces as well. And I'm I'm wondering, so who would you say your artistic predecessors are, if if any? Yes. Um, Frida Kahlo, definitely. When I first Mm -hmm. learned about Frida and. I understood how powerful she was as a woman, despite Mm -hmm. the barriers she had. People like Georgia O'Keeffe, who just were some bad-ass feminists, (laughs) who just, like, found a way to seductively share their message, but from a place Mm -hmm. of empowerment. Mm -hmm. Um, Artists like Malakias Montoya, who is a Chicano poster, um, maker Mm. who taught me about why it was important to create screen prints and to create works on paper. Mm -hmm. Um, Emery Douglas, the Minister of Culture of the Black Panther Party, who told me to be unapologetic and to be direct Mm -hmm. in my work Mm -hmm. and that who gives a shit if the white establishment (laughs) does or does not accept my work. Uh, So, you know, and then there was other people that I never met, but that I would see their work, people like, you know, Barbara Kruger, mm. who um, had a, an image once of a woman bending over, and it said, this is not an invitation to rape me. Uh, and I just sort of have been tremendously inspired by artists who went against the establishment. And I'm really lucky that um, I got to learn about art from people of color because I think one of the most painful things for so many young creative people is that you don't really see yourself reflected back as an Mm. artist Mm. in popular culture. I mean, we, where are, most people can't even name five black and Latina artists. Like, Mm -hmm. they, 
this is sad. We can name many white artists. You know, even when I was growing up and I told my teachers I wanted to be an artist, they said, here's Picasso, here's Rembrandt, here's Matisse, Monet. I mean, I can name so many white male artists. I've had to be deliberate in learning the names and seeing the work of women of color because mm-hmm. our system, you know, if you look into in the museums, did you know 85% of the works on museums are by white men? Like, that's the world we live in. And so this also actually explains why I am an activist, because it's not enough for me alone to make art. We have to change the entire Mm -hmm. system Mm -hmm. around who controls culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you describe a little bit your artistic process when you do create a work? Yeah. So when I I create something, um, I do. So I do a lot of reading. I'm immensely... Um, interested in issues around climate change, gender mm-hmm. justice, immigrant rights, and I read a lot. Mm-hmm. And I understand the structural challenges, but also just the the feeling of what's happening in our communities, because mm-hmm. I, I have been around it. And so I'm usually inspired by one theme or the next, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm inspired by the way women are coming out about their stories around sexual harassment. I get inspired by um, how um, the family, for example, of Trayvon Martin or Oscar Grant, how they continue to share those stories. And so when I go in the studio, I think about those stories and I think about how to represent them abstractly. Like all of that is in my brain. Mm -hmm. And so when I make things, I allow for myself to process and I also Mm -hmm. allow to find the beauty in the resilience of what this takes. And so some of my works, for example, are called silence breakers, Mm -hmm. intersectionality, the cultural ecosystem, because although I'm not literally drawing what I see, because I did that for years, I don't do that anymore because Mm -hmm. I find that I need to delve into my imagination in order to just sort of get lost, but also to think about the future for, for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that we are going to be struggling forever. I believe that we are going to win and that things are going to change. And so when I make art, I kind of keep that in my mind. And then in terms of the steps I take, um, I create my own color palettes. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of collaging. My studio is just like a huge maze of shapes um, and paper and materials and I love to pin things together and I arrange and I rearrange I arrange Mm -hmm. I rearrange and then when I feel good about something I commit to it Mm -hmm. so um, you work primarily in printmaking and you've described it as being a a very accessible and democratic medium. And we were watching some of some videos of you creating your art. And uh, one point you made that really stood out to us was that uh, you said the printmaking has an inherent quality of multiplicity. Um, So could you tell us a bit more about the role of multiplicity in your work, both in terms of the medium that you use as well as the content? Yes. Um, So multiplicity what it what it really means is that something can exist in more than one place and what i always found about a painting was that it was too precious mm-hmm. and sort of it belonged on this white wall and there was only one of a kind but what my mentors taught me you know emory douglas 
who was the minister of culture of the Black Panther Party, would put his art on newspaper covers. <laughs> My other mentor, Carlos Cortez, who is no longer alive, taught me about linoleum block and how I could make one carving and reproduce it hundreds of times and make sure that this art was everywhere. And that stood with me. I realized that paper, works on paper, just carried a different kind of meaning and that I could go across the country and roll up my stuff. I could roll it. I could fold it. It didn't have to be this precious work of art. And it also is a, it actually is a precious work of art because the amount of work that it takes to create a work on paper mm. is similar to if I'm doing a painting or a, um, a, a fine art etching, uh, the same amount of energy and effort goes in. What I love about paper is that I began with a foundation of creating work that was accessible. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I would make posters and screen prints and I would create offsets and just hand them out at rallies. And so that has informed my practice for a very long time. And it's why I continue to work in this medium because it is, it, it is my roots. And I love the fact that I can make something and roll it up and put it mm -hmm. on a plane. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it, 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 it makes me feel that the art can go anywhere. And mm -hmm. that's my goal as an artist. My goal as an artist is not for my art to live in a white cube where nobody can see it. My mm -hmm. goal is yeah. that it makes people happy. It reaches people. It's in offices. It's in mm -hmm. places where people can interact with it. And feel joy and also just, you know, feel what I was intending for them to feel when I made it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and you've already mentioned this here, but a lot of your art and your projects seem to kind of merge um, your artwork with these kind of political practices and political involvement. Um, so what does this mean exactly on a, on a practical level and, and just um, for you? Yes. Um, well, it means that a lot of my works are inspired by the activism that I'm doing, mm -hmm. whether I'm doing feminist organizing, excuse me, whether I'm doing feminist organizing or working around climate change. So, for example, my works recently have been around my relationship to plants. Hmm. And I started working on these because I left an abusive relationship and the person who I was with was um, a like a plant whisperer. They were so good with plants, and I was always so busy that I never got to interact with plants, and I was always feeling like I could never do it. Mm -hmm. And so when I ended um, an abusive relationship, which was it was it took me a good year to get out of it, I realized that for me to take ownership of taking care of the plants and the garden mm -hmm. meant that I could learn how to care for myself. Mm -hmm. And in yeah. taking care of plants, I found that there was a deep relationship between humans and plants. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, plants have terraformed the planet. The reason yeah. we can breathe is because of plants. And I also found that I, my healing was related to what I invested my energy in. And mm -hmm. so rather than trying to fix or rescue people, I could fix plants. I could rescue plants. You know, mm -hmm. I could get all the bugs out of them and, and in return, they would give me a flower. <laughs> I found that it was such a beautiful reciprocal relationship. And mm -hmm. so in my work, I'm currently 
uh, showing my re- my relationship to plants, but also their tremendous healing ability. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. that in all cultures, um, medicine is derived from plants. Yeah. Mm. Um, plants are the ultimate source of wisdom, and so I, I you know, th- this is this is what I I do is that I really try to go deep into a subject. So whether it's the butterfly, the migration is beautiful butterfly, mm-hmm. or I'm talking about climate change or whether I'm talking about abortion Mm -hmm. and pleasure and pussy power. Right. Mm -hmm. I, when I go into these themes, I like sort of like just explore it from many different angles. But as an artist, what it means is I just play with the symbols. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I try to think about all the different ways I can interact with this concept And then, of course, I get bored and I move on. But there's never a lack of ideas because, honestly, I am I am working with frontline communities. Mm -hmm. Like what I see, if it wasn't for my art, I actually think that I would be um, I would have some health challenges or I would have some mental health challenges because the stuff I interact with is very sad. Mm -hmm. It's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's. It's very heavy um, to witness trauma, to see the way in which we're destroying the planet, to see the impacts of factory farming, to deal with people who have lost loved ones, Mm -hmm. um, to the prison industrial complex. I mean, it's just all around. And I draw the intersections. I know Mm -hmm. that same people who are pumping oil out of our earth are the people investing in prisons. Like these things are connected. Mm -hmm. So there is never a lack of ideas for me. It's more that I need to focus in as an artist on where I can find the most joy Mm -hmm. because my role as an artist is to bring joy to communities Mm -hmm. and, um, and to also process and sit with the pain of what has been committed mm-hmm. against us and and allow ourselves to move forward by seeing that we are resilient but also by seeing a future I feel mm-hmm. like my art shows a future mm-hmm. um, that's amazing and uh, hopefully we're going to talk uh, a lot more about all of these uh, points that you mentioned but uh, speaking of bringing joy to people uh, let's talk a little bit about the migration is beautiful butterfly um, mm-hmm. it's such a potent symbol and uh, and before we start talking about the, the butterfly itself, we have some questions about that. Uh, but we understand that you worked on this project at the same time as you were the executive director of Culture Strike, which is a, a national arts organization that engages artists, actors, writers and producers in immigrants, in immigrant rights. So could you tell us a little bit about um, about Culture Strike? Yes. So I am still the executive director of Culture mm-hmm. Strike. And I started Culture Strike in 2011 because mm-hmm. I felt that as artists, we did not have an institutional home mm-hmm. and that there was many movements who wanted to invite us mm-hmm. to work with them. But we were always just relegated to do posters or to just come, you know, recite a poem on the stage or sing a song. But we were not engaged for what we can do really well, which Mm -hmm. is that we can change culture. And I also felt that artists need a home where we can organize with each other Mm -hmm. because it's not just about what we make. It's also about the fact that we are artists in a white supremacist cultural Mm -hmm. infrastructure, Mm -hmm. which means that it's not like, you know, museums are showing Latinas 
work by Latinas. That's rare. That's hard to find. And yet there's over 50 million Latinx people in this country. And I'm just thinking to myself, what the hell? You know, when I was growing up and I was a kid going to museums, I couldn't see Latinx people. And I'm now a grown adult going to museums. And often I don't find Latinx artists to in reflection of the demographics of this country. That tells me that there's some bias happening. Right. So yeah. I created Culture Strike because of that. And um, because I love artists, mm-hmm. I am a mentor to many artists. And I am an artist who has been tremendously successful despite not getting a formal education. I am a total entrepreneur. And mm-hmm. I love to support other artists, mm-hmm. especially artists of color, um, queer artists, trans artists, indigenous artists, women artists, that is my calling. And because I'm also a leader, I'm a natural leader, I love to organize people. Mm-hmm. And so I started that and I still, it's that, that's still something I do. It's, it's half of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I have a love hate relationship with it because I definitely need more time for my art. And I dream about one day being a full-time artist. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, systemic racism and sexism is so bad that I need to also do things like this. Um, But yes, I created my butterfly during the time that I founded Culture Strike. And I've always done two things at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, this is... uh, this is very much Fabiana. And if you <laughs> notice in my art, there's always two people, like at mm-hmm. least two people, yeah. because yeah. I always feel like it's like these two people fighting with each other. Like one of them wants to be an artist. The other one is trying to organize and they're always <laughs> trying to get more time. Uh, so, so yeah, that's, that's the history of how I, I created Culture Strike. <laughs> yeah. And we're really interested in this idea of a kind of mobile, non-stationary um, art that, that you do produce. And the butterfly image... Um, is easily accessible, and it's also meant to be easily replicable. Um, So do you feel that it is uh, critical in the current moment for art to be publicly owned, for it to be shared and collaboratively created? Yes. So I think art can be anything. Mm. And I do think that we need more opportunities for communities to engage in artistic practice Mm -hmm. because a lot of our schools just don't teach us art. It's not like we have, you know an abundance of art museums in poor communities. We don't. Mm -hmm. So I believe that art is a human right and that young people, especially from marginalized communities, must have access to creativity because it is the way we express ourselves, but also it's the way we see our human condition. If it is in fact um, in, in the UN charter of human rights, it says that every human deserves to see themselves reflected in the media and culture around them. That's mm-hmm. a human right. Yeah. Imagine if you're like a blue person and there's no blue people anywhere. Yeah. In in the stories you read, everyone is like white people. Mm-hmm. And what does that do to your imagination as a blue person? I just think that it is so obvious that when people do not see themselves reflected, if you're a person with disabilities and you never see reflections on television, in cartoons, in stories, in dolls even. You know, mm-hmm. you can't... When have you been gone to the doll store and you've been able to buy a doll of a kid with a disability? Mm-hmm. That, to me, is in, that, that to me is forced invisibility. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that it also perpetuates a dominant culture. 
Mm-hmm. And I try to do everything I can to change that. Um, and so, you know, in my art and in my institutional practice, mm-hmm. this is the biggest thing I work against mm-hmm. is is against the white supremacy, the right heteronormativity, cis ableism that exists in our culture mm-hmm. and how we can change it. And in order to change it, we're going to need artists. Yeah. So it's sort of like this dual thing that I always try to balance, which is that um, – how do we empower artists to tell better stories, but also how do we change the systems? How do we go mm-hmm. to the, you know, to the white folks in charge and say, you cannot do this anymore. This yeah. is not, this is culture belongs to all of us. It's all of our right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, scoot over <laughs> sitting at this table now. And maybe you need to, you know, get off the table. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, moving now a little bit to your um, recent work in climate change. And we had the privilege of hosting Amitav Ghosh, uh, a very well-known Indian novelist, as our guest in our previous episode. And one of the things that he talked about was the significant absence of climate change in contemporary fiction. And he said oh. that fiction that engages with the everyday environment, the natural world around us, no longer appears to be in vogue. And this was very surprising to him. And in an interview last year, you spoke about how there is this problem with the imagery around climate change, in that we need to see those um, who are in closest proximity with the earth. And uh, we found this very Mm -hmm. striking, especially um, with respect to our previous conversation with him. Um, So where and how do you see art as making an intervention in the current climate change discourse? So this is such an interesting interesting question. I'm so glad you brought this up because I agree. Um, We as a human species are not aligned with nature and yet we are nature. Like we could not exist without trees, without oxygen, without water. And all of those things are endangered. Mm -hmm. We are living at a time when we have less than 12 years to change the course of a climate crisis. And already people are feeling the impacts, especially communities of color. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this is the result of a white colonial hetero worldview Mm -hmm. in which men have been in charge and they have driven us to climate catastrophe. We are on a train that's headed towards a wall. Mm -hmm. And so we have to understand that, one, we are not separate from nature, but that unless we begin to really feel and realign with nature and understand how we can fight for all of humanity, because I do believe that there is a larger natural intelligence. Mm-hmm. The things that allow for our fascinating life to happen, mm-hmm. I mean, even if you think about how our bodies work, mm-hmm. how photosynthesis works, how the oceans work, the moon, the sun, it is a very complex system mm-hmm. that is highly intelligent and it's actually more intelligent than our brains. It's more powerful yeah. than what we can see and think, mm-hmm. right? We need to tap into that to understand that we can help transform the current course. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, we need to just feel our stories in relation to nature. And mm-hmm. this is why actually I am so um serious about creating art with plants and with climate and I'm a vegan now because mm-hmm. 
I want to share the stories of what it took for me to feel the pain of what factory farming is doing mm -hmm. to creatures. And as a human being that I feel more and more tuned in to the natural world, I believe that there are a lack of stories and symbols and imagery that remind us just that we're humans. And this arrogance is what is leading us to climate catastrophe. This arrogance that we can somehow drill oil that's 500, 600 thousands of years old in order to power our stupid short-term cars. <laughs> yes. it, is, it is such small thinking. Yep. And Absolutely. what I love about art is that it opens our imagination. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we need right now is to reconnect with animals and plants. I mean, it's wild to me that we eat them. I mean, human beings <laughs> eat animals every freaking day. And yet we can't read about books from a pig's perspective or from a cow's perspective. Like really, like if you're putting the shit in your body, wouldn't it be great for you to know the story of that little creature? And so I love the idea of creating art about nature, about animals, about mm -hmm. trees, mm -hmm. about bees, yeah. because in doing so, we can turn ideas around. You know, mm -hmm. for example, I'm not afraid of bees anymore. I love bees. <laughs> I try to have more bees in my garden. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. um, just a few days ago, I bought a whole pack of ladybugs. And maybe five years ago, I would have been like, ew, what's that? Like, I don't want that on my hand. And now I can easily touch them and sprinkle them around my yard. And I know that they are fierce. Ladybugs, mm -hmm. like, they are like gangster. They come and they <laughs> eat all the white little bugs. So in me learning about that, I'm like, wow, these are great stories. Yep. Like, hmm. why are we not doing stories? And in fact, you know, the other day as I was um, – reversing in my driveway in my electric vehicle I knocked over this arm of a cactus mm. and I just left that little arm there for a few weeks and then my friend came to visit and he picked it up and he put it on my table and by now the little tree was like all dry and <laughs> and then another few months passed and it was just sitting in my kitchen corner and then finally like less than a month ago I was like you know what you look like you're dying, but I'm going to put you in some soil. And it was all dusty and, like, dry. And I put it in some soil, and in three weeks, it grew. Sorry. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And in three weeks, it grew a new arm. Oh, wow. This old, decrepit, dying this old, decrepit, dying organism hmm. has life in it. And yeah. here I was going to compost it. And it was such a metaphor for me because I realized that we, we discard people and we discard things like it's nothing. Mm. And it's yet there is so much light, like there's so much possibility. And I was just thinking to myself, I need to write a children's book about hmm. Just all of the lessons that plants can teach you mm -hmm. and the the many ways that kids can learn about their relationship to nature because unfortunately of course you know we live in the time of you know blue screens and screen addiction um because i think that when human beings really can hear voices and even if it's fiction from other creatures like trees and they can feel how much we're hurting them we, we as humans are just doing it 
because we're greedy, because the reality is, is just, you know, in this country, we're using 17 times more energy than any other human. Like Mm -hmm. even, you know, when you have a baby here, the amount of plastic you use before the baby's even 10 months old, like exceeds the plastic someone's going to use in their lifetime Mm -hmm. in, in other countries. So I just think that perspective, and this is what art is. It's about perspective. If we can open the door to other perspectives that are non-human, I believe Mm. we can lead a shift in how we interact with the planet. Um, and, and just help people feel empathy, right? Mm-hmm. We don't just have to feel mm-hmm. empathy for humans. We have to feel empathy for what we're doing to the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that is so significant. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is switching gears a little bit. Uh, but in 2016, you received the Robert Rauschenberg Artist as Activist Fellowship uh, for your work around mass incarceration. So first of all, congratulations. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and your project sounds absolutely fascinating. So could you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes. So until we are all free, mm-hmm. it um, was a project. This was before Trump got elected. So mm-hmm. it's very fascinating that it became very relevant <laughs> when he got elected. But mm-hmm. I got the award before he got elected. Mm-hmm. And the goal of it was um, to show the the facts, the, the fact that mass incarceration now is very much targeted um, not just to black communities, but to in immigrant communities. And there's yeah. been a whole system built around the incarceration, detention, and deportation of immigrants. And it's a cruel, cruel system. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it is, it's sort of the, the, the way that um, the private prison industry is looking at just more bodies to hurt and to dominate and incarcerate. And I find often that in our discussions around mass incarceration, whether it was the film 13, um, we just simply don't talk enough about how this system is carrying over to immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, And that it is such a subversive system because they don't even call it mass incarceration. They don't even call them prisons. They call them detention centers, but they are prisons. Like kids are in prisons. Uh, and so I wanted to create a project in which we could actually understand the connections between how mm-hmm. these systems um, hurt us, affect us, put, it, put us in cages, but also to talk about our freedom, to talk mm-hmm. about second chances. Because if we don't want incarceration, if we don't want these systems of punishment, which actually mm-hmm. punishment doesn't work, I don't believe that putting someone in isolation is going to change them. It's actually going to make them sicker. So um, how do we heal our people? And when we talk about freedom, what do we mean by that and how can we depict it? So the project was about imagining our collective freedom, especially as oppressed people, as black people, brown people, indigenous people, um, immigrants. How do we understand that our freedom is interconnected, um, that... Also, that anti-blackness um, is a core part of this prison industry um, and this sort of exploitation of the human body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the project was all around understanding these connections, but also showing the future of what's possible mm-hmm. uh, and doing so through art. Mm-hmm. 
and um, we, as a um, part of the Public Humanities Lab, we're interested always in hearing and talking more about um, collaborative and um, co-created artwork or projects. So um, you've also helped to build the lab, which is a co-working space, and that's very interesting to us, in the heart of downtown Oakland that's focused on racial justice, culture change, and climate and climate justice. Um, and we can see the connections with Culture Strike uh, with this. So um, what is this project again? Like, and, um, Yes. Yeah. So, so Culture Strike, we've been growing since 2011, and we realized we needed um, a space in downtown Oakland. So we merged with another organization, and we are now running that co-working space. Um, and it's a space where activists and artists and creatives can gather. Uh, it is... Um, we house organizations like Greenpeace, 350.org. We house the Marijuana Incubator. We are there. Um, there's just a lot of grassroots organizations that work out of there. So um, it's, it's, it's just we need an office space because mm-hmm. downtown Oakland is also one of the most heavily gentrified areas in the mm-hmm. Bay Area. So we needed a place where we could call home and also invite other people to be there with us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And um, one of the other um, projects that uh, I believe you've been working and collaborating on, um, you've been working with women in the entertainment industry on projects such as Fifty Fifty by Twenty Twenty. Um, mm-hmm. So, could you tell us a little bit about this project? Yes, um, Fifty Fifty by Twenty Twenty, which was co-founded by Jill Salway, um, is a project that aims to get more equity in Hollywood. You know, mm-hmm. after um, the Harvey Weinstein. Uh, stories broke open and we heard from courageous survivors about Mm -hmm. their experiences. What it tells us is that despite, you know, this group of women who is, they're wealthy and they're powerful, Mm -hmm. abuse and harassment is still very much a norm Mm -hmm. in entertainment. It Mm -hmm. actually, you know, the white men in power in Hollywood, they run that town. Mm -hmm. They have way too much power. I mean, um, and some of the data shows that uh, of all the film directors, 96% of them are white men. It's just a real, real biased um, and systemically unjust place. Mm-hmm. And so after uh, Time's Up was born in January of 2018, which was thanks to the hard work of leaders like Toronto Burke, who mm-hmm. helped start the Me Too movement, um, after it sort of became popularized, I then began to help organize with artists in the industry because as an artist, I also recognize that I face and many of my um, female homies and, and even trans homies, queer, mm-hmm. non-binary folks face extreme exclusion mm-hmm. in all of the arts and culture spaces. It's not just mm-hmm. film and television, it's music, it's visual arts. And so I teamed up with Jill to really think about how are we going to fight this problem. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it by organizing. And we're also going to do it by doing intersectional organizing, which is really around building ties between marginalized communities. And so um, I work with people in entertainment. I work with music. I'm um, working with people in sports, just really trying to see how we can unify. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, we've talked about like so many of your um, projects and you're just involved 
so intimately in in all of these projects and and the projects are all in such very different and uh disparate um, issues and also with the lab where you're working with all of these other groups how does your involvement with so many things um kind of influence the way you think about art yes um so I'm definitely involved in many things, and I'm also I have a great team that works with me. So I can't do this all by myself. It means that I have to just work with a lot of different people and create teams. The older that I get, um, I realize that I have to move at a pace that's realistic because, you know, I, I was also raised by immigrants who had two or three jobs mm-hmm. each, and. I have a propensity to be a workaholic and I always got to check myself on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been trying to now build more teams, make sure I stay healthy and try to sleep and, you know, do normal things like that. But in my art, I always see them as interconnected. Mm-hmm. And I see that um, my activism and the things that I do to build an institution inspire me. And they help me make good art, but it also just exposes me to other people. You know, I get yeah. to meet people making film and movies. And then I think to myself, maybe I can make my own film and movie. It just mm-hmm. helps open up my imagination mm-hmm. because I get to work with other creatives who, like me, are passionate about changing the world. Mm-hmm. But we also have our artistic practice. You know, we, we know that we love to um, make stuff and... I find that, you know, the thing that holds us together is that we're makers and we work in the in the realm of the imagination. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. Um, so one of the things that we always kind of ask our guests in conclusion is if you have any reading or viewing uh, recommendations for our listeners. Okay, let's see. <laughs> it's a difficult question, I know. <laughs> Oh, yes. Okay. So, so two things that I would recommend. The first one is I would recommend people to watch Surviving R. Kelly. And if mm. they can, also um, the story of, of uh, Michael Jackson, um, mm-hmm. um, which I think it's called Something Neverland. The reason I encourage people to watch that is because I think we need to hear from survivors. And we are at a time mm-hmm. when we are just now hearing from survivors and believing them. Mm-hmm. And so I also believe you should take care of yourself. These are hard things to watch, especially mm-hmm. if you yourself are a survivor. But I think it's important to see how we can change culture because mm-hmm. in reality, surviving R. Kelly has changed the tide on, on, on how we interact with him and on the industry. I mean, he is now facing, um, he is, he is facing consequences for what he did, mm-hmm. and that's because of the powerful work of people like Dream Hampton who produced Surviving R. Kelly. Similarly, we're also now understanding what who Michael Jackson was, and we can see him in his complexity. Mm-hmm. And um, it's important. It's important to see that. Mm-hmm. And if you also have a chance, I would listen to the testimonials during Larry Nasser's case, especially mm-hmm. by Ali Reisman and Rachel DeHollander, because in doing so, you are listening to survivors who are taking back their narrative mm-hmm. and who are um, demanding accountability. Uh, and, and so I, I think those stories are important. Uh, and uh, my friend Jill Soloway just wrote a book. 
Um, it's a, a memoir. What I love about this book, though, is that it really just captures um, how Hollywood is this, like, white man's place and what it meant for Jill to make space for trans people mm-hmm. um, and, and, and to be a sort of a path maker in that when it came to storytelling. And it's just fascinating because it happens um, as Time's Up is being born. And and you can just sort of see the contradictions, but also the things that align. And I think it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a, a powerful read. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, the book, um, When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Cullors, mm-hmm. um, who's also my friend and a co-founder of the Black, um, Black Lives Matter, just a very powerful memoir about her organizing and her life. Mm. Oh, and then, of course, Pleasure Activism by A.J. Marie Brown, which features my art. That's another great book that just has come out mm, that um, just talks about the importance of, of pleasure in our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. So thank you so much for joining us, Fabiana. This has been absolutely fantastic. Yeah, you've given us and our uh, listeners a lot to think about. It's been so much fun just just talking with you and hearing your thoughts about everything. Um, this is great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye-bye. Yeah. And thanks to our listeners. For those of you who want more information or would like to subscribe to our podcast channel, please visit our website at www.circulatingspaces.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay tuned for our next episode. Until then.